0: As we develop this quality of metta in our lives, we have to realize how expansive it can be. The Buddha talks about going to the forest and practicing metta. He's talking about a regular day when he goes off on alms round, he comes back. And it must be in an early phase of the development because he says he goes and rakes up some leaves or grass to make some place to sit. He does have a sitting cloth. That's where he's sitting on just a pile of leaves under a tree. And then he says, I develop loving-kindness. Now, this is the Buddha. So, the Buddha is still practicing loving-kindness after his enlightenment. I don't know whether he actually talks about practicing it before his enlightenment, Maybe not. It was not known in India. Unconditional loving-kindness is not known in India. In fact, in the entire history of the world that we know of before the Buddha, we don't have any record of anybody encouraging unconditional loving-kindness for all beings. You have ideas of forgiveness of your enemies and so forth, but it's limited to the human realm. It's a rather late and radical idea. Christianity love for humanity, but exemptions for animals, (laughs) Buddhism and the Buddha is the only place where you find this statement of unconditional loving kindness for all beings without reference to their conditions, whether they are your enemies, your friends, or it doesn't matter. And whether they're human or not. So this must have been something that the Buddha arrives at, and it's uh, something post-enlightenment. And also he's still practicing it. He's going to the forest and practicing this. He's telling somebody so how he spends his day and he says, then, but I don't just sit there practicing loving kindness. When I walk, I practice loving kindness. When I'm standing, I practice loving kindness. And when I'm lying down, I practice loving kindness. So it's not to be confused with a stillness, extreme stillness only or just sitting. And you see it in the sutta that he wants to make it clear that this is not just a special heightened form of uh, consciousness that you can only attain with your legs crossed. In the jhanic development, they always talk about being in a sitting posture. But in this case, he's very clear that it is a, something that you can dwell in, in all postures. And at the same time, in order to be in a state of profound goodwill five things have to be absent, really, and those are the hindrances. The five hindrances have to be absent. The five hindrances, I'm sure you all know this, but are aversion and desire are the first two and the heaviest ones, ill will and craving, and then agitation and its opposite, stagnation, and then doubt, which is a state of uh, uncertainty. Or we could say also anxiety. Our time is anxiety. We're riddled with anxiety. But when they start talking about the details of doubt, anxiety is a pretty good description of that. Doubt is described as a person at a crossroads where there's two choices, but they don't have enough information about which one to take. And at the same time, there's pressure on them, that they can't stay there. There's a growing necessity to move, but you still don't have the information required to make the move. And as you know, in ordinary human psychology, we'd call this in evolutionary terms a fight or flight. We're good at just those two things. You either fight or you run. But we're not good at standing there, not doing either. And that's what, in a sense, modernity, a lot of modernity is standing there. And you can't fight and you can't run, get caught in the middle. And that's what anxiety is. So anyway, these five are absent in loving-kindness. Now that's a wonderful thing. And at the same time, loving-kindness is something that's very specifically asserted by the Buddha to be in action, in motion. So here we have, we're right on the edge, in fact, of something profound. And that is we're right on the edge of Jhana, the eighth factor of the Eightfold Path, the Sama Samadhi, qualities that allow you to attain this samadhi as you have enough mindfulness to eradicate the five hindrances. Mindfulness, as they keep repeating in Four Foundations of Mindfulness, we develop it on the body, on feelings, on the mind, on Dhamma categories, just to the extent, and this is the phrase that's repeated again and again, just to the extent necessary for the overcoming of the first two hindrances, ill will and desire. Sometimes translated as covetousness and grief for the world. Basically, the first two hindrances. When they refer to the first two hindrances, they're just a summary. You know that all five are included. The object of mindfulness is to purify the mind, of the hindrances, which allows you to be on the edge. Well, it allows you to be free, and it opens the door to deeper states of lucidity and awareness. I hate to use this word concentration, because it just throws a wrench in things. Uh, This word samadhi is more or less... uh, The first syllable is sa, which means together. And I like to think about it as getting yourself together, getting your act together, getting your mind together. A wholehearted experience of freedom from the harassments of normal consciousness. Ordinary consciousness is harassed in five different ways. The five hindrances are harassments, self-harassments. And if we can stop this harassment, the sun comes out from behind the clouds. The Buddha talks about the nature of the mind is pabasara. A beautiful Pali word, Pabhasara, is luminous, radiant. And you can't take credit for it. It's not that you're just a radiant character. It's the mind that's radiant. And it just happens to be that way when it's not harassed. And so... With loving-kindness, you can make your way into the luminous. You can shine with loving-kindness. Because loving-kindness overcomes the hindrances, especially the most pernicious one, aversion, hostility. And that hostility also has all kinds of ramifications. Your agitation can be caused because of the aversion. It also can fatigue you and leave you in a state of stagnation and depression because it's so draining. This uh, metta is such a profoundly beautiful thing. It allows you freely to operate in all postures and be very effective. You could of course give a talk while you have metta, as I'm doing right now. I can talk, I can think, I can share with metta. You can clean the floor and have metta. You can do artwork, you can do heavy labor, you can Go for a run. You can run a marathon full of loving kindness. In fact, maybe we should experiment with some of these runners to see if we can improve their time. It might make them lighten up. This thing is a marvelous thing and if you want to develop other forms of extraordinary or exquisite deeper stillness, then metta is a very good preliminary to it. And if you've been frustrated with Maybe you have taken up the idea of someday attaining jhanas or deep samadhi, but you're always fumbling around with it. You can't get there. This is one way to just put that aside, and then you're arriving without the hindrances through this. And you can cultivate it in all postures, so you're not stuck there trying to get into samadhi for two hours while your knees are screaming at you. It's a very beautiful thing. One of the benefits of loving-kindness mentioned in the 11 benefits, the mind is easily calmed. So if we can get there with metta, the mind is now easy to calm. By, By calm, they really mean to access deep states of serenity. So if we can get you know, 90% of the way there before you even sit down in the sala. If you want to explore that, if you've always had trouble focusing, just spend a few days at least and just enjoying the kind of lightness. Not trying to see how long you can sit or anything like that. not really necessary for the cultivation of profound metta. Be kind to your body and um, be kind to your mind in a gentle way, and being kind to your mind means that you, of course, uh, you want to be energetic and joyful and alive, and that's, you have to infuse the mind with these things. Metta also allows you to use your discursive mind. By the way, so uh, the uh, first jhana of the uh, Eightfold Path, the, the Eighth Factor, The first jhana has something called applied and sustained thought. And when you're doing metta, you're going to have to think. How do you get the theme of metta? You can't do it without thinking. And what the Buddha asks you to think, he says, think about beings. Think about beings in this direction, in that direction. Recall kindness. So use your memory and your imagination And your thought processes on a single theme, stay on that theme as if you were reading a very interesting, gripping book. There's many similes in the Pali Canon attempting to explain these mental states that they're talking about, these higher mental states. Because most people don't do these things. I think many people have moments of... The factors of serenity or samadhi or jhana, they have moments of it. but It's not sustained enough to be a significant part of your life. The Buddha is working towards this, advocating that this is the path. The path is the avoidance, this extraordinarily strong interest in weeding out these psychological burdens and harassments that are part of normal consciousness. He says that you must free yourself from this. And, of course, he mentions on the side as well that there's no point in, in any kind of recommendations to be physically injurious to yourself as somehow beneficial, to inflict pain in any way on your body as somehow beneficial, is to be set aside and to avoid infliction of unnecessary mental suffering through any of those five hindrances. Sometimes there might be a, the necessity to arouse energy and determination And you might feel lethargic and you think, there's some pain involved in making myself do this. And the Buddha is just saying, you know, it's not really a pain. The pain is that you're in a state of laziness or stagnation. And just to awaken from that enough to get moving with your endeavor towards happiness, sometimes interpreted as painful, but not really. You're freeing yourself from pain. So, this is the process. The path is the path of pleasure. And not to be confused with sensory indulgence, but it is a higher and more sustainable and more profound pleasure. So when you think of the path, it's the path of pleasure. Sometimes it's called the beautiful, the path of the beautiful. Kalyana, beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the end. But this is just another synonym for pleasurable beauty without pleasure is hard to imagine so it's pleasurable and the factors of awakening which both lead to enlightenment and constitute enlightenment are all pleasurable mindfulness sustained curiosity or investigation energy is pleasurable joy is pleasurable joy is pleasurable by definition Tranquility is pleasurable, samadhi is the highest pleasure, and equanimity is profound pleasure. Those are the factors of enlightenment. They lead to enlightenment and they constitute enlightenment, all pleasurable. The five hindrances, all obnoxious. There is some pleasure in desire occasionally, but never a satisfactory pleasure. So this is the beautiful invitation and it's so important to explain that again and again and to remember that again and again what you're doing and to get on with it as quickly as possible towards the pleasant, beautiful experience of the mind coming out from behind its various clouds and mist and fog, obscurities, and just being luminous. It doesn't require any great ingenuity, it's there inherently in the mind as long as we have enough sense to stop doing the normal kind of infliction of discomfort on ourselves. So many of these benefits to this cultivation, if you're headed to the higher end of the path, and that's why you go on meditation retreats, it's the development of the higher mind, the last three factors in the path are right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And that is the development of the higher mind. The other five factors preceding that are the kind of keeping you safe from falling into negativity or big problems. It's an ethical lifestyle, it's a view of life, it's being careful with your speech and your actions. But all of it leads to the ultimately to the opportunity, if you take it, for the development of the higher mind. And this is when you'd go on a a week-long retreat, or two weeks, or more, is for this, this higher mind. So you can be very reflective, and to reflect on that encouragement, too, is always, that word should be there. This is a path which has no downsides to it. It's all positive, and has pleasure intrinsic to it. Whenever we're walking on the path, of course, when you get off into the thorns and so forth, you can't blame the path for that, that you're off the path. That's why it's painful. Loving kindness embodies that. It's just intrinsically pleasant, and it's a taste, an opportunity to see. This is a facsimile available to you before enlightenment. It's something available to you to give you a sense of what that is. And to give you a a taste for it, so you're highly motivated. That motivation, by the way, is very wholesome motivation. The path is not without desire, but the desire is for wholesome attainments. And there's a strong desire, this chanda, this kusala, skillful endeavors. And if you experience this this purification of the heart, of its totally fruitless and unskillful contaminations, then you will feel what it is to be healthy. You can't really know what true, profound good health is until you have a period of goodwill and loving kindness without mixture, without any kind of negativity in it at all. And when you get that, you'll be highly motivated to continue. The other part of loving-kindness, though, is that you can get quite sensitive to things and it's easy to experience a sensitivity when other beings are suffering as well. And this is where we need wisdom to balance this open-heartedness and to help us make decisions, practical decisions in a practical world, because we have to function in a practical world. And that's the balance of loving-kindness with equanimity, Equanimity is the philosopher's virtue. That is, wisely looking on the world and knowing that sometimes things go badly. And in fact, in human existence, ultimately they must go badly. You die. Even if you have a very long and happy, healthy life, all the more poignant that you die in the end. So, it's important to have the philosopher's wisdom and to say, you know... The fact that I have great goodwill and patience for all beings, including myself, does not change the facts of reality. We're not trying to be sentimental. We're not trying to get carried away. Loving kindness then falls into a different type of experience, which is fraught with sympathetic grief and sorrow. You're moved by everything in a painful way. So this is the two things that are going on, and these two things occur at the same time. They're simultaneous, and they constitute each other. They're the yin and the yang, you know, the two motions. You know, when you do the, your Tai Chi exercises, so you see some, one of them is pushing one hand ahead, while the other one, you're actually learning that you can go in two directions at one time, and those two directions balance. The right hand goes ahead, while the left hand comes back to the body. The left hand goes ahead, while the right hand comes back to the body, and a kind of a circle going in two different directions. Equanimity and loving kindness. And maybe you can bring it to mind, thinking about that. In the West, we don't do Tai Chi. We, you're taught as a kid how to pat your head and rub your stomach at the same time. So that's equanimity is up here. This is loving kindness down here. And when you first get introduced to this in grade three, it is a lot of fun. <laughs> because you end up patting your head and, and your stomach or rubbing both. But to separate the two... It's quite a feat of coordination. In fact, that's what kids have to learn is coordination, isn't it? And you'll see people who never learned that as a kid how to pat your head and rub your stomach at the same time. Maybe it's, uh, it's a secret message passed on by the Buddha. He probably taught some kids that, and it's gone on every generation for 2,500 years as a secret message in a bottle from the Buddha. And one day you think, that's what that meant. I can be in touch with reality. I can see with clear eyes what happens to universes, to planets, to people, to puppies, to the kitty cats. I can see that, but without chilling me to the bone, I can remain warm. At the same time, I can be warm. The Buddha is warm, and he's utterly unshakable in the facts about existence. He says, look, you know, it's just that way. Terrible things happen. The body is fragile, mind is fragile, societies are tumultuous, full of wild injustices, and if the people don't get you, then a disease will. You know, it's (laughs) no problem. How to remain with perfect clarity, no filtering of it, bringing it into consciousness, but without fear and worry. What loving-kindness does is, even when it comes time to die, the mind is not confused. So loving-kindness cancels the fear as well. So these two things are so beautifully aligned and so... Supportive of each other, that when we want to cultivate this loving kindness, and we should probably start first with loving kindness. And some people are—they'll come to me and they talk about they got the their loving kindness all right, but they just empathize with everybody so much that they're almost always in grief. <laughs> so that's the cure. That's the brilliance of the Buddha. He says, "I know that it's a wonderful thing to be a compassionate, loving person, sensitive to others. It's just an amazingly great thing." It's a beautiful thing to observe. But at the same time, if that person does not know that equanimity functions alongside that, they will they will suffer. And that's a terrible thing to see. A very beautiful heart destined to just never be able to get itself out of the trap of sympathetic grief. So it's such a profound thing that we have to go back and forth between these two things and exercise them both. So when we get... Absolute, clear-eyed reality sense. We don't want to get too crystalline cold and then lose the warmth of life. And when we get warmed up, we don't want to lose our head, we get swallowed up by the sorrow of beings that are suffering and in pain. We cannot be swept away by that. So This is the the exercise is back and forth this takes some brains as well it's not just an emotional exercise it takes some reflection and thinking about this pondering considering reflecting remembering so what are those pondering thinking reflecting remembering those are the first two of the enlightenment factors mindfulness is remembering remembering this lesson Remembering these truths, remembering to sustain it, to come back to it. And what the next one is, it's called Dhamma Vichaya. Vichaya is this word investigating, pondering, reflecting, considering on these Dhammic themes. Dhamma meaning the most important thing in existence. Knowing what the most important thing in existence is. Which the Buddha says is to overcome suffering. That's the most important thing. So vichayo, this investigation, the use of your intellectual faculties, your capacity to think, ponder, consider, analyze, take apart, put together, that is uh, all at the service of the highest purposes. And th- that is to deconstruct this network of suffering, which rises because of lack of skill, lack of knowledge, lack of investigation, a lack of memory. And we hear this stuff and then we forget. You, know? you just find yourself in the midst of a hindrance and you've forgotten altogether. So we're cultivating our memory, the capacity to sustain these things. So on a retreat, you have So can I carry this out? Can I find my way there this morning and maybe in the morning sitting? Can I find my way to loving kindness? I need to use my imagination. I need to use my memory. I need to remember what it is I'm supposed to be doing. I need to feel my way through to the rising of actual feelings, because it's not just an intellectual process. Not just repeating some phrases again and again. It's just like a sense of opening the Heart. So, what would this feel like? Do I feel it? Is that enough of a feeling? Or could it be better? This feeling also is, of course, described as deeply pleasurable. Is this deeply pleasurable what I'm feeling? Do I feel it up my spine? Do I feel it in my chest? Do I feel it in my face? It's supposed to transform the face. The countenance is serene. Your face is serene. It relaxes all of the muscles in the face. Do I feel that? Changes the shape of your eyes. The eyelids, everything is changed by that. Look at somebody looking at a baby, you know. Watch their face. The eyes narrow down, everything changes. The whole face changes. That's why the Buddha uses that simile as a mother loves and protects her child. So when she's looking at their face to face, right there, she's got this watch the face change. So this is, the, uh, this is the assignment for this week, class, <laughs> is to raise loving-kindness but realize that it's balanced by reality, a perfectly established sense of reality which does not flinch, does not blink, and it's only because of the Dhamma it's healthy to do that. Mostly, I think, if a person doesn't understand the development of emotions and so forth, if they have this a too realistic sense of things, then they will become pessimistic, negative, and soon take to drink. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a certain wisdom and structure behind this clear eyed sense of reality, and at the same time the invitation to say, you're not just a cold computer looking at the reality of the world. You're a warm and intimate human being, which never loses touch with reality, the true nature, the full spectrum of what really happens.